This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. You're listening to Marketing Matters on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Hello, and welcome back. I'm Barbara Kahn. I'm a professor of marketing here at the Wharton School. America's Read is out today. So here with me is my guest co-host and fellow marketing professor, Keith Niedermeyer. I'm always honored to fill in for the hip-hop prof. Yeah, the hip-hop. It's always always down a notch when I'm here, but I'll try to do my best. But you know music also. (laughs) That's true So when you understand whatever it is they're playing, I'm like... (laughs) I was dancing to the bumper yeah. music, and Barbara's like, you you just get this. I don't understand yeah. it at all. I have no idea. My mind goes blank whenever the music starts playing. It's, yeah, not good. I don't know how I could be on radio. But. <laughs> anyway, this is Marketing Matters and not Music Matters. It's on Sirius XM Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM 132. And in our next section, we have one of our favorite things to do is to talk to fellow marketing professors and find out more about their research. Our next guest is Caleb Warren. He's an assistant professor of marketing at the University of Arizona. And what he writes about is comedy and humor and consumer behavior. Hello, Caleb. Hi, how's it going? Oh, it's fine. So when you tell people you write about comedy, do they automatically assume you're funny? Um, Well, not if they know me. (laughs) (laughs) And already scores. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <All right. laughs> well, tell us a little bit about your background. I, I always think it's interesting to ask marketing professors, how the hell did you get to be a marketing professor? Uh, well, it was, I, I was interested in like, all sorts of topics as an undergraduate student, uh, and I couldn't decide, and my parents suggested I do something practical, so I ended up in the business school. Uh, marketing was my favorite topic there. And by the time I was done with my degree, I was convinced I didn't want to do marketing, but I was really interested in understanding it and its effects on consumers and society as a whole, and that uh, led to my my Ph.D. in the area. Did you go straight through school? Uh, Yeah, pretty much. I spent a year between my undergraduate degree and starting a Ph.D. program, mostly working as a research and teaching assistant. Oh, that doesn't count as real work. (laughs) So the answer is no, you haven't worked a day in your life, right? (laughs) Just been a professor. Pretty much. <laughs> yeah, okay, all right. So, um, and, and you got your PhD in uh, Colorado. Are you a skier at least? Uh, yes. <laughs> I, I revived my, my interest in skiing while doing my PhD. Uh, I somehow managed to find a couple days to go every, every year. Yeah, so it's pretty different in Colorado than Arizona. Oh, yeah. uh, actually, they're, they're way more similar than any other two places I've lived. Oh, really? In what way? They're both mountain towns in the college where it's sunny most of the time. Oh. Uh, you're a little bit farther from the snow here, but there's actually a ski area right in Tucson. It's only open about three weeks a year. <laughs> Is marijuana legal in Arizona, too? Uh, no, that's a lot more common <laughs> in, in uh, Colorado. Yeah, I bet. It's older. Yeah. <laughs> all right, well, Barbara, you're all over the place there. <laughs> I like to know all the different things. I know things you like that, to know things. Yeah, I like to know different types of things. I want to know how you got interested in studying comedy and humor. Um, that was a little bit of an accident, too. My co-author, uh, Peter McGraw, was studying moral moral psychology and especially taboo trade-offs. So when he... With uh, Te- Phil Tetlock, who's here. Oh, yeah. Well, right. well he, Pete was Barbara Meller's student and Te- Phil Tetlock's his right. co-author. Just to say, Phil Tetlock and Barbara Meller's are very famous professors that are at our school. They're what we call a PIK, and their goal is to integrate knowledge across many different schools. They're very, very well known, and mm-hmm. Tetlock was 
Peter's or Mellers was Peter's advisor. You're saying, and so you're their grandchild, apparently, right? Uh, yeah, academic grandchild. <laughs> uh, and well, anyway, he was talking about his work on taboo trade-offs, um, and particularly with churches. So he's talking about how churches will like raffle off a Hummer to try to gain congregation members or outsource prayer to India. And he was trying to argue that these are moral violations and people get really upset. But as he was giving these examples, people would crack up laughing, at least the academic audiences. And so he, he came to me and he's like, we need to figure out why people are laughing at these things that they think are wrong. And that kind of morphed into a, a bigger theory of what we think explains humor, not just with not just when moral violations are funny, but when really anything is funny. So let's get right into it. Then your the theory is called benign violation, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the 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 like the two word answer to what makes things funny, we think, are benign violations. And what that means is something threatens you or your sense of the way you think the world should work. So um, if uh, something seems wrong or threatening or off or just not right. Um, that's a violation, and usually those aren't funny. Usually those seem horrif- horrifying or offensive or just awful, but in certain situations you might recognize that something seems wrong but be okay with it. It's not a big deal. It's not real. It's not happening to me for any of those reasons, and when that happens, that's when we argue people experience humor. So, like, my understanding of this benign violation is it could be either one. Either take something benign and make it seem not so benign or or something that you should take note of or you make something like you're saying that's taboo and make it not threatening uh yes we've we've uh we've talked about that we've even given names to we've we've assigned different comedians a name for both of those strategies so um well at least before her recent turn sarah silverman was definitely the type who took something that was straight awful and wrong Mm -hmm. and was able to find a way to make it seem benign and funny often because she was this innocent seeming cute uh, woman, um, whereas Jerry Seinfeld would take right, everyday yeah. situations that seem normal or benign and point out the thing that seems wrong or messed up about it. One of the things I think is really cool about this is that I was in uh, this whole theory, which I, I think has I think it's a really interesting theory, and there's a lot more we can talk about it. But one thing I went to a the New Yorker magazine has this it, it's actually running right about now. They have this yearly thing where they have all sorts of talks and events and things like that. And I went to one where they had all the New Yorker comics or whatever they call the cartoon drawers Mm -hmm. Uh, and they were celebrating because the editor had just written a new book and he defined comedy as benign violations he used that term so i thought that was a pretty nice testament to all the stuff that you guys are doing now can those be qualified as humor i I never (laughs) laugh at those new yorker cartoons (laughs) but they're all benign violations they They they, definitely are they actually do fit to that they I, i bet you almost every one of those would fit into your framework I think the bigger challenge with our framework is uh, false positives. I think there are some there are some things that might seem like benign violations that aren't funny, and we need to figure out for what else, what either how to define these terms more precisely, or what other conditions are necessary. For example, a lot of um, is is Paul Rosen there? At, at yes, one? yes, yes. Mm-hmm. He's in so our he psychology lot, department. He talks about benign masochism, but um, and some of those examples seem like they should be benign violations, but don't seem particularly funny, like people who will try to eat really spicy hot sauce to challenge themselves that way. Um, so, I mean, I think, well, with any theory, there needs to be more work in an area. But uh, I think the, one of the strengths of our theory is that we can explain most things that are funny, we can point out a benign violation in it. Um, but there might be 
some things that aren't funny that also seem like benign violations. Yeah, I, I could see that, as, mm-hmm. but, but I agree. You can use it to define what is funny. And what's interesting to me, before I heard this theory, is I used to think of, of humor as like unexpected or surprise. And that's a piece of this, but this is a more precise definition of, of it than just unexpected or surprise. Yeah, so that's, I think that's one of the most common misconceptions about humor. Um, and I mean, there's a strong natural correlation between something that seems like a violation and something that's surprising because most violations are surprising. However, uh, we can laugh at the same movie or the same joke that we've seen or heard or, uh, many times before. Uh, it's no longer surprising, but it's still funny. And there's a couple of experiments that have uh, basically manipulated whether something's funny or not. And in certain situations, things seem more funny when they are expected. Punchlines to jokes, mm. for example, seem more funny when they are expected, given the setup. Um, but... Uh, so, uh, yeah, and then the other the other piece is there are all sorts of unexpected things that are not funny at all, like a loved one suddenly dying yeah, or... Yeah. Um, that is not funny. No, not at all. Anything, oh, most, most unexpected tragedies, for example. Well, how do you use, like, in something like stand-up and things, I see people, and what really makes things funny is their timing. How does that fit into all of this? Well, uh, the... the I don't have a great answer for that. The one part of our theory that's most closely, that does the best job of explaining that is the, so we, we actually say there are three conditions to our theory. There's this violation appraisal, something needs to seem wrong or off. There's the benign appraisal, it needs to seem okay. But then you need to have both of them at the same time. So we call this simultaneity. You need, and other researchers have sometimes called this incongruity. But you basically you need to, need to hold these conflicting appraisals or perceptions at the same time, and the timing is often really crucial to that. It's why if someone explains a joke to you, you might be able to understand the punchline. But, but it's still, no longer funny. <laughs> but yeah, it still doesn't make you laugh out right, loud, right, at least right. not as much as if you kind of got it right away. Yeah, right. That that makes sense. Um, so you're talking about, it's funny that you said other people. So this is a big, is it a big research area, to figuring out what's funny? Um, it's not it's a really diverse research area in that it draws from all sorts of different academic disciplines. There's a lot of stuff in linguistics, um, some in anthropology, some in psychology, some in sociology and English and literature, um, some in neuroscience, uh, but some in business, uh, which is the field I'm in. And then, but there's not in none of these fields are there a lot of people doing. Uh, doing this research, but I think if you combine across all of them, it's a it's a decent size of um, of academia. It's just not in any one department. I see. Makes sense. So where are you heading with uh, g- getting this more precise and and deeper understanding of of humor and comedy? Um, where does that take us for our understanding of consumer behavior and and why it matters to to marketers? What's the direction? Uh, well, in some ways, those are different directions. Um, <laughs> I mean, so one direction is trying to figure out more precisely how do you create something that's a benign violation uh, or really understand what makes something seem benign or a violation. And that, um, that's more useful, I think, for people who want to produce comedy or researchers who want to understand what makes things funny. The other direction that I think you were alluding to is what are, you know, how is this useful for consumers? Um, or potentially marketers, and that's more about understanding the effects of of humor, appreciation, and comedy. 
Um, and so, like the the paper anyway that um, uh, that I don't know if it attracted your attention or the paper that you told me we'd be talking about is looking at <laughs> yeah. that second question right. of, of mm-hmm. uh, how do how does humor, both creating comedy and appreciating it, uh, influence consumers' ability to you know, basically live rich lives to accomplish their different types of goals? Mm-hmm. Okay. You want to tell so, us about sure. that one? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm really interested. So in, in that paper, you, you kind of deconstruct um, some different definitions of, of humor and comedy and then, and then tie it to a couple a couple of different categories. So I was wondering if you could maybe uh, uh, spell some of that out for us. Absolutely. Um, one of the tricky things with studying humor, in part because people have studied it from so many different backgrounds and approaches, is that it's often defined and conceptualized very differently. So some people focus on the act of creating, uh, making other people laugh, creating jokes or movies or whatever, whatever is humorous material. Um, Others focus on the, the process of appreciating humor, so it involves laughter or being amused. Um, and others focus on these individual differences that people have in um, ability to produce or likelihood of laughing at. So that's often called sense of humor. So we tried to distinguish between these three meanings of humor, um, referring to them as comedy production, making a joke, Mm-hmm. Uh, humor appreciation, laughing at a joke, and sense of humor, which is more of a personality trait related to the tendency to make other people laugh or laugh yourself. Um, so that's the that's how we sort of split up the different types of humor, um, and then we uh, I'm trying to think of how to do this precisely without going into too much boring detail, but. Um, <laughs> we tried to figure out, well, what are the different effects that both comedy production, making other people laugh, and humor appreciation, laughing, can have on consumers who are trying to reach their hedonic goals, basically feel better, short-term happiness, their utilitarian goals, which means like making better decisions, um, remaining healthy, persisting towards long-term objectives like losing weight or saving money, uh, and also their social goals, so persuading others or building relationships. And uh, what you found was that it's it's pretty complicated and it's different in different situations, right? Yes, absolutely. Um, there is a, and, and I think the re- the reason that's noteworthy is that a lot of people I think have assumed or uh, or read that humor is this this magic medicine of sorts, where it's a it's kind of a cure. It's described as a cure all. Uh, there's there's a lot of popular press articles, even a few academic articles that say, you know, is humor the best medicine, uh, something like that. And it's it's uh, it can be useful in certain situations. I think especially especially when it can be especially useful um, when people at helping people cope with negative emotions or problems or potentially contentious relationships where people are maybe coming from different cultural backgrounds. But it really depends on how how you create humor, how you what the type of comedy you create. So if if you think of like really um, more nasty, disparaging jokes, are a lot less likely to help with most of these outcomes than um, what's called positive uh, a positive humor style, self-enhancing or affiliative humor. So really, kind of joking with someone rather than at them. So when we see. Uh humorous things embedded, say, in, in advertising. Um, so that could certainly make um, 
the receiver of that, you know, feel better. Like you said, uh, it kind of creates an elevated mood. Uh, it's from a neuroscience standpoint, stimulates pleasure centers. But does it help transmit the message? Well, there, there's kind of two effects that people often look at in persuasion research. One is um, recall, memory, or the other is attitude, whether people like the product or brand more. And for the, the, the data on the memory part is a lot better. That are a lot more, um, what's the reliable, or I'm, I'm a lot more certain about it. Uh, and what that shows is that the humorous stimuli themselves uh, attract attention and are remembered better. So if your joke is part of your product or part of the message you're trying to convey, people will remember it better. But humor attracts attention away from unrelated content. So if you um, if you make a joke and then talk about your brand after, people are actually less likely to remember your brand than if you had not made a joke at all. So um, one ad that comes to mind immediately for me was the, um, the Super Bowl ad, I think it was last year, with Melissa McCarthy, and she's trying to save the planet and getting like maimed by rhinos and mm-hmm. all this horrible stuff's happening to her. And then at the end, you find out that it's, it's all about this car. So in an ad like that, people remember the ad really well, and they remember the funny things happening to Melissa McCarthy, but they are less likely to remember what the ad was about, what the brand was. Uh, and to tell you the truth, I don't even remember what the brand is. I think it was Subaru. Uh, maybe, yeah. I could be wrong, though. I don't know. Great, yeah. We're talking to Caleb Warren. He's an assistant professor of marketing at the University of Arizona, and he's explained to us his uh, theory of comedy, of humor, and how it affects consumer behavior. And a, and a lot of what you're looking at, oh, by the way, we should mention, if you want to call in and, and chat with Caleb, it's uh, 844-WHARTON or 844-942-7866. But uh, your theory is more, uh, at least in this paper, is a lot about how humor aligns with, with different types of um, goals, consumer goals. So I was wondering if you could break that down a little a little bit and maybe give us a, an example we could get our, our, our hands around uh, of how that might facilitate or hinder a specific consumer-based goal. Sure. Um, so, yeah, the, really the goals we're looking at are kind of hedonic goals. Um, will humor make me feel better now? Utilitarian goals, will it help me make better decisions or uh, become healthier? Uh, and social goals, will it help me persuade others and make friends, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the, to take one example, decision-making, uh, the effects are mixed. So if you're, if you're uh, say, laughing, if you're, if, if you're amused, which is the emotional component of humor appreciation, um, then you tend, to make, you tend to be more creative, which can help you make better decisions. But at the same time, uh, you tend to process information less carefully, uh, which can lead to you making maybe more careless decisions or, or less less good decisions. Um, so that's just one domain where the effects are, are kind of mixed. It can help or hurt. Um, with relationships... Before you go on, can you tell us yeah. how you test that? What, what kind of experiments do you run? What kind of data do you run to prove what you just said? So uh, our paper is a conceptual paper. We're reviewing other studies that have done this. Well, then tell us how other people do Sure. Um, <laughs> so the... Uh, for the creativity stuff, I mean, some of the really early research on mood in psychology, or I don't know how, the, the early research I was exposed to, so a lot of um, Alice Eisen's work in the, the, the 80s uh, would actually manipulate humor usually. It would show people a funny video 
and then measure. Although she, I, I actually co-authored with Alice, but yeah, she I, talked I, I about yeah. So, but I didn't want to get that wrong. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, but um, she talked about it as positive affect. Right, and it and it is, um, but it's a spe- also a specific type of positive affect, and I'm not sure the effects would be the same if you were manipulating awe, for example. Right, right. Well, now we talk about emotions as much more nuanced. Before, when she was writing, it was either positive or negative. The end. Right. Now, of course, emotions are rainbow mm-hmm. of different types of emotions. Yeah. So some of, I mean, some of the like a lot of the literature we review in this paper on creativity, anyway, comes from comes from that stuff. Um, your your research, um, and then uh, so the so for the information processing. One, um, my, the study I think is most convincing is by Vlad Griskovicius is the lead author on it. And he, the reason I like this study is he manipulates a lot of different positive emotions. So he'll make people feel, uh, experience amusement or humor by writing about a time where they, they laughed about something. Um, and then he has a bunch of other positive emotions, I think, a time where they were in awe of something. Mm-hmm. And then he'll look at... Oh man, I forget what the exact dependent measure in this was. But but let me just get back to that. Yeah, so that sorry, kind of manipulation of humor is basically you get to call, you get to define it the way you want to, and you just think about something that you think is funny, basically. Right. Which uh, that's an interesting way to define. It's almost well. Like, I mean, it's more of a manipulation of humor, more or operationalization rather than a definition. Um, but. So the, and the way we've defined humor appreciation is consistent with that because it's in the eye of the beholder. Um, when someone, when the way we, I think the way we define it is a psychological process that's characterized by amusement, um, perceived funniness. You think something's funny and the tendency to laugh. So there are these three. There's an there's an emotional indicator. There's a behavioral indicator, laughter, and there's a cognitive indicator whether you actually think something's funny. Um, and so I think that's consistent with asking someone to write about something that they thought was funny. Yeah. So one of the one of the uh, sections in your paper talks about humor efficacy and uh, failed comedy. And uh, yeah, there is nothing worse than when you're in front of a room and, oh, and that joke doesn't funny. land. Oh, oh it's my the worst. God, it is really I bad. hate being on the one end of it more than the other. But uh, <laughs> yeah, you talked about like that Melissa McCarthy ad, but when you're sitting through those Super Bowl ads, you're expecting them, you know, almost by default now to be really humorous and, and benign violations. And when they really fall flat, you're just like, whoa. And, I mean, what does that what does that do to the marketing message or to the efficacy of the message or or the goal related things that you're looking at when when it's just a failure? Well, it almost never helps when it's, when it's a failure. <laughs> you know, I could have guessed that, Caleb. Uh, so, and and that's, uh, yeah. I mean, if you're with one of the, it also depends a little bit on the way you fail. So when you're when you're making a joke or otherwise trying to produce humor, there are really two ways you can fail. You can um, people don't see the violation, so you say something and people just think it sounds normal, uh, and that's unlikely to hurt as much. Mm-hmm. But if you if you create a violation that people don't think is benign, this is when you sell, say something that's crazy offensive or people think, like, what's wrong with this person? Um, that's a lot more harmful, especially uh. for, in advertising anyway, that's a lot more harmful for the marketer and for consumers. So this is probably most relevant in the social effects domain. Uh, you're a lot less likely to make friends uh, when you're, when you're uh, we call them malign violations. When you mm-hmm. fail, when you fail trying to be funny because you're 
uh, you're actually violating. <laughs> yeah, you're too threatened. Yeah, right, that, right. That's not funny at all. No, yeah. Too soon. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, like, uh, I know you finished this conceptual paper. What do you got on the docket for uh, future research? Um, well, we're, there are other big paper we're working on now is another conceptual paper that's looking on the, the, the first part of it, which is when do, when do things, uh, when do consumers think something's funny? Um, so it's, it's going into more detail on uh, what makes a benign violation and also comparing it to other, other antecedent conditions, other ingredients in their humor recipe. Um, so like being unexpected, um, superiority, which basically means um, seeing yourself as better than someone else by comparison. Um, and uh, I think there's an arousal we're looking at as well. Wait, so that's, that's a, a category of funny, seeing yourself as better than other. Because I think of humor as like self-effacing, just the opposite in some ways. Well, a lot of it is, and, and that's one of the... Uh, so uh, there are a number of humor theories, superiority theory, and sometimes it's called disparagement, or is that right? Disparagement theories? Certainly superiority theories where they argue the main ingredient in humor is uh, either aggression or triumph or a sudden feeling of being better than either other people or even yourself at a previous time. Um, but we, I don't, the data are not, are not very consistent with that theory, uh, which is one of the things we discuss in this other paper. It's more consistent with um, this violation idea where the violation can be because some, something bad happens to someone else, but it can also be something bad happening to you, which is right, kind of right. what you're talking about. Yeah, the self-effacing kind of. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, there seems to be a lot of a lot of comedians do something mm -hmm. like that. And I also what? like was thinking a lot of stand-up, for example. That's not the only kind of comedy, obviously, but a lot of it is very personal. Right. I was going to say the better. I think the really convincing evidence on why superiority isn't the necessary ingredient in humor it comes from the animal literature and like tickling where um, so animals will often laugh when play fighting and children too for that matter um, and you know, some adults uh, and same with tickling and both are kind of playful attacks where there's an aggressor who's in a superior position who's tickling or chasing but the person that's far more likely to be laughing is the one who's being tickled or who's being chased the one who's not in the superior position, but the inferior position, which hmm. doesn't fit very well with superiority theory. That's an interesting kind of observation. But we shouldn't tickle our customers, right? No, yeah. I think that won't work too well, especially in today's Me Too era. That <laughs> doesn't seem like a good idea. Well, Caleb Warren, time is up. Thank you so much for being with us tonight. Well, thanks a lot for having me. It was really interesting to hear about your current research and your future research. Good luck with all of that. If you want to learn more about Caleb, find him online at marketing.eller.arizona.edu. When we come back, Keith and I are going to be discussing China. That and your calls right after this on Marketing Matters Business Radio, powered by Wharton on Sirius XM 132. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. Thank you.